I want to continue to talk with you now about the history of Christian nationalism. So this is part two of a two-part lesson. In the last episode, I talked with you about the something of the history, the most recent history, as well as the um, church history of Christian nationalism. In the United States, the current fervor really began to ramp up during the 1970s, during the creation of Jerry Falwell's moral majority, I told you. And then the so-called Christian right has evolved from a, a fringe movement, beginning with figures like Jerry Falwell and Pat Buchanan and Pat Robertson and Phyllis Shafley, and found its way into the mainstream of Republican politics and found growing support within the Christian community. I mentioned to you that the 1988 Republican Convention, Pat Buchanan was instrumental in introducing a religious tone to the political discourse when he declared that the Republican Party was engaged in a holy war. Many Christians bought into this notion, and many Christians again today, uh, many Christian leaders especially, are, believe that America is at risk of being overrun by a Marxist-based philosophy. Of course, that could very well be. The, the, the society and, and the nation is at risk of always being overrun by something. But that's not the primary concern of the church. European history has proven that when the church seeks safety by allying itself with the state, the end result is the loss of the gospel, a loss, a quenching of the power of the spirit as the church morphs into a chaplaincy for political power. So I um, exhorted you to consider the, the stewardship of the Christian in guarding the treasure of the gospel. I explained to you again that the gospel that we preach is a, that of God's eschatological salvation, meaning that the salvation that we possess as those in Christ does not come from this present evil world. It, it does not originate within the philosophical or the political or even the religious mind of man, but is in the, from the mind of God and finds its origin and its current state, identity, purpose, and hope in the future kingdom, the future new heaven and new earth, the priorities and the values and the power of which God has brought into human history when he sent his son into the world. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and then again at Pentecost upon the people of God that Christ purchased by his death and resurrection. And so that the church now exists as an eschatological community that is no more of this world than Jesus was of this world. And that, therefore, we do not fight on the same plane. We do not wage war on the same basis as the world does. And we never should enlist this power of the state to substitute for the power of the Spirit in bringing about Christian conversion or establishing Christian morality. 
So the church is an eschatological community that draws its values and its priorities not from this present evil age, but from the age to come. So, but we are engaged, as were the apostles, in defending that gospel and for uh, preserving the church and her mission as it was designed by Christ and is uh, set forth in the New Testament. So today I want to talk with you about the heresy itself of Christian nationalism and give you some points to help equip you, especially if you're a pastor, especially if you're in leadership, to be able to discern and expose this and keep it out of your church. Now there will be those who insist on it. There will be those today who have, who's, who have given themselves over to this a nationalistic narrative. And while they profess to be Christians, they have departed far from the Christian narrative and may need, in fact, to be brought into church discipline if they don't repent thereof. That's how serious this really is. In the last episode, I mentioned to you that there are plenty of New Testament texts that support the fact that the Christian is indeed to acknowledge that government is not a creation of humanity. It didn't come from Thomas Jefferson. It didn't come from any human mind. That government derives its authority from God. That there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, those are not my words. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ in Romans 13, 1 through 7. Indeed, we are to pray with supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all those who are in high in authority. We are not to lead marches. We are not to uh, incite riots. We are not to... Uh, derive uh, or create conspiracy theories or uh, whether it be from the left or the right. Let me just acknowledge here. Let me just state clearly that the Christian's responsibility is to place the dividing lines where they belong. Please hear me now. The dividing line belongs between the world and the kingdom of God between this present evil age including its politics on the left and the right and the values and priorities of the kingdom of God that are derived from the future kingdom and worked out in our lives in the present by the Spirit. The dividing line does not fall between left and right for the Christian. Rather, the discerning Christian understands that the left and the right are both part of the same evil system. So I'm not speaking from a left position or a right position. I'm speaking from a kingdom position. position. Let's make sure that we put the dividing line where it actually belongs. And that is where the New Testament puts it. 
Okay, so we are to actively intercede on behalf of authority. I told you that the only time that there's any reference to those resisting or despising authority or despising government is in the negative where Peter outlays or lays out the characteristics of the false teachers. It is typical of false teachers to despise government. 2 Peter 2.10 Read it for yourself, beloved. Now, if you've been caught up and you've been overwhelmed and you are presently part of this Christian nationalist movement, I want you to hear what I'm saying in these lessons because you need to come out of it. It's a threat to the gospel. It's a threat to the cause of Christ. It's a threat to your mental and spiritual health and that of your family, and especially that of your church. So I've just quoted you several references that if those above passages would likely, uh, when spoken out of their context, would be derided as leftist talking points by many within the Christian right. And that's again... Let me say it one more time, because they've placed the dividing line in the wrong spot. Let's consider a few others. For instance, there are biblical references to those caring for the for that we should care for the widow and the orphan, James 1.27. We should rebuke the rich, not enable them, especially if they withhold just wages from workers. Now, that's not a union manifesto. That's the Christian teaching, James 5, 1 through 6. When was the last time you heard those passages taught among Christian conservatives? I dare say that I can scarcely hear the gospel today anywhere. What I hear is Christian conservatives talking like Republicans and Christian liberals talking like Democrats. And what neither one of them are saying is the gospel. Let's look at another passage, this one regarding the distribution of resources so as to ensure equality. Oh, how this would be derided in some circles today. Quote, for the, for the, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 2 Corinthians eight twelve through 15 Can you imagine that being read in many conservative churches today? And even in liberal churches, they would take that and run with it as a, as a, um, uh, as warrant for teaching their socialism, their baptized socialism. I don't care what they're doing, whether it's on the left or the right. Baptized capitalism or baptized socialism is still baptizing the the the, the philosophies economic and social philosophies of this world instead of being good stewards for the message of the gospel, the kingdom of God. So, one point seldom considered is where the government derives its authority. Is it from the consent of the governed 
or from God. Now we learned in good civic lessons growing up in school that is consent from the governed. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There is simply nothing within the New Testament to support that government is by human design and continues by human consent. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson relied upon not the Bible, but upon the humanistic philosophy of John Locke for his conclusions in the Declaration of Independence. Author David Percot, P-E-R-C-O-T, writes, quote, Here Jefferson is borrowing heavily from John Locke's humanistic two treaties on the government and its theory of human governments. According to that humanistic theory, the people themselves are the ultimate authority behind earthly governments. Therefore, if citizens aren't happy with their government, they have the right to overthrow it. In contrast, the Bible teaches that God is the ultimate authority for human governments. We already looked at Romans 13, Bercow says, which says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. God couldn't have said it more plainly. Governments do not derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. They derive their powers from God. End quote. Now, many Christians today would read Perko's statement as anti-American. But Perko is simply stating biblical truth. And if you reach the point where you are more American than you are Christian, then you are in heresy. And this highlights the issue at hand. What is informing the Christian mind today? The American narrative or the biblical narrative? Of course, many will argue that the United States was founded upon biblical principles. But is this accurate? As shocking as proposed words may be to our patriotic scruples, that does not change the reality. One point of great irony is this. Since government ultimately derives its authority from, the, from God and not from the consent of the governed, the most patriotic thing any Christian can do is refrain from direct political involvement and focus time and resources instead on advancing the gospel. Now, let me briefly state six points that expose Christian nationalism as heresy. Number one, the substituting of the power of the state for the power of the spirit. When the risen Christ was about to return to the Father, he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait there until they received the promise of the Father, that is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For only when they would possess the power to fulfill their mission to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth where they to leave Jerusalem. But in these perilous times, much of what calls itself the church has in fact repudiated the power of the Spirit in favor of human ways and means, whether it's political action or business and entertainment models. 
This includes allying with the power of the state to legislate and enforce Christian values. This is also evident by how churches have adopted this business and entertainment model for evangelism. Instead of prayerful reliance upon the power of the Spirit and the preached word, they rely on slick marketing and surveys. Point two, placing American values over those of the kingdom of God. As already mentioned, the church is an eschatological community meaning those who live out the life of the future kingdom in the present, by the power of the Spirit. This means for God's people, the priorities and values of daily life are defined not by the prevailing culture, but by the ethic of the kingdom of God. But, as with the power of the Spirit, the influence of the kingdom ethic has also been substituted with American ethics and values. Some go so far as to advocate for a white Christian nationalism with the segregation of races as practiced within Viktor Orban's autocratic Christian democracy in Hungary. By contrast, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a universal outreach to all nations, and the kingdom of God thrives on diversity. It is a diverse people living out the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is founded upon the Spirit, not upon race. Waging Spiritual Battle in the Flesh, point three. The New Testament reveals that a spiritual battle is being waged between the truth and the lie, darkness and light, good and evil, and that this battle is for the Christian mind. The apostles are clear that the battleground is not waged according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, says Paul, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 and elsewhere we read, quote, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christian nationalism acknowledges a battle. But instead of waging war by the spirit of truth with the word of God, they attempt to use worldly, carnal means to overcome spiritual forces and therefore play into the hands of the very darkness they seek to overcome. Centuries of religious wars in Europe resolved nothing. Rather, those wars and inquisitions only eclipsed the image of Christ and quenched the spirit. There is a reason that period was called the Dark Ages. Point number four. Redefining the basis for fellowship. Recently, a Christian told me his test for fellowship was whether a person believed in socialism. No one who accepted socialism 
could be a true Christian, said this man. While socialism has been historically hostile to Christianity, one's understanding of that system is not the biblical test for fellowship. I also read recently of a woman who expressed great disappointment that her son differed from her on certain part partisan issues, saying, quote, he had gone over to the devil's army, the Democrats, and the media, end quote. Once again, seeking to establish fellowship or maintain fellowship based upon partisan political leanings, left or right, denies the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as the biblical standard for Christian fellowship. Point 5. The loss of discernment. To idealize any political or religious figure requires the dulling of spirit-given discernment. Within Christian nationalism, it is common to view a particular leader as beyond criticism or fault. Many Christians display a messianic devotion to a leader despite that leader's public display of very non-Christian character. The word of the beloved leader is often then regarded as infallible, and blind loyalty reflects a cult-like passivity. The willingness even to commit acts of bigotry and violence by some in support of that leader reflects a shocking lack of discernment which only can be described as idolatry. Point 6. The loss of Christ-like character. What is more, when a, any particular leader commands blind loyalty within a large population, that population often adopts many of the moral characteristics of that leader, for good or for ill. This is the most heinous aspect of the heresy of Christian nationalism. For the Christian is to share in and be conformed to the into the character image of Jesus Christ, and not any political or religious leader. The Christian is a child of God, not Caesar. So let me offer you now a brief summary and conclusion. It has been the purpose of this brief essay to call attention to and expose a growing heresy within the Christian community, the heresy of Christian nationalism. There is an urgent need for an immediate pastoral response. We have been reminded that as an eschatological community, the church is called to respond to conflict with the world by displaying the superiority of the life of the future age and their daily conduct in reliance upon the power of the spirit and not the power of the state. It is right and good for all Christians to exercise civic responsibilities as they choose, such as voting in support of ballot measures in keeping with their values. And there is great privilege in being an American citizen, for which all Christians should rightly give thanks to God. However, to respond to political and social threat by forming alliances with the power of the state, including that of the sword, 
in order to force compliance to Christian values and teachings is a denial of the church's true identity, purpose, and hope, and is therefore heretical. The mission of the church is to convert hearts and minds of the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Spirit, not to legislate, regulate, and enforce Christian values upon the general populace. We have identified six points that expose Christian nationalism as heretical. The substitution of the power of the state for the power of the spirit to meet the church's mission. The placing of American values and ethics over and above those of the kingdom of God. Waging spiritual warfare by carnal means. Redefining the basis for fellowship by employing tests of partner, partisanship, the loss of discernment in favor of blind loyalty to a leader or leaders, and adopting the moral character of a political leader or group versus conforming to the Christ-like character in all holiness by the Spirit through the Word of God. These six points reveal the gravity of the threat posed by continued involvement in political movements that employ Christian terms and symbols, but are in truth worldly and destructive to the cause of Christ and to the health of Christians. It is imperative that pastors and other leaders begin to teach these biblical truths in response to this heresy, and, if necessary, exercise biblical discipline upon those who refuse to repent. We are to guard the treasure of the gospel message and to fulfill the ministry of reconciliation versus the ministry of the sword. This is the call of each Christian individual and each Christian church, a calling for which all will one day give an account. I encourage you to read the PDF if you're on sermonaudio.com. If you need, if you have questions or you have concerns or would like a copy of the PDF and don't have access on Sermon Audio, perhaps you're on some other platform, you can send me an email at encounterrecovery at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get one out to you as soon as possible. If you have questions, you're also welcome to leave, um, or comments, you're welcome to leave uh, that at EncounterRecovery at gmail.com as well. If you're looking to pick a fight or just argue <laughs> for your favorite political view, uh, you can do that, but I won't respond to you, so why bother? My goal is to support the gospel of Jesus Christ and to guard the spiritual and mental and physical well-being of those in Christ. May the Lord bless you and strengthen you and give you great heavenly wisdom in these perilous times. Amen.